Hey, this is Dan Quiggle with episode 52 of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. I'm really excited for this episode with Bobby Herrera. Bobby is one of 13 children and the first in his family to be born in the United States. The son of two migrant workers from Mexico, Bobby joined the army when he was 18 so he could take control of his own destiny and fulfill his father's dream of serving in the armed forces. After leaving the military, Bobby worked briefly in accounting, and although he didn't love it, it taught him a lot. His experience in accounting got him through the toughest parts of starting his own business. Today, Bobby serves as co-founder and president of Populous Group, one of the fastest-growing HR service companies in the United States. Bobby also speaks to many business leaders and entrepreneurial groups around the world. He believes that everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed and is an unwavering supporter of the underdog. You will definitely want to check out the show notes for this episode, episode 52. You can find them at quigglegroup.com forward slash 052. That's quiggle, Q-U-I-G-G-L-E, group.com forward slash 052. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this leadership podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback helps us improve and also gets the message out to more listeners around the world. To rate, review, and subscribe, please visit quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. I can't wait for you to hear from Bobby Herrera. Enjoy. Because my leadership philosophy is pretty simple. We all struggle. Every struggle teaches us something. That's the gift. And leadership is sharing those gifts. And we can all do that. Imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, and then getting to choose from that group. That's what this leadership podcast is all about. Learning from the best how to be your best, so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and changing communities. I'm so glad you're part of this Leadership Podcast community, where together we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. Bobby, I'm so happy to have you on my podcast. Thank you for being on the show. I'm grateful to be with you. Thanks for the invite. So first, I want to chat about your personal life, including your upbringing and some of your early experiences. Can you give my listeners some background so they get to know you better? So I'm, I'm the son of a bracero from Mexico. You know, my dad's a Mexican hardworking immigrant. I'm one of 13 kids. I grew up in a migrant farm working family, small town, eastern New Mexico. And when I turned 18, I raised my hand and took the oath and joined the army. And that was a wonderful experience. And, you know, after that, I went to college and uh, back to New Mexico. And after I graduated, I you know, started my professional journey and I relocated around the U.S. quite a bit, had some good fortunate opportunities to make a lot of mistakes. And I started my leadership journey, um, I'd say in about the mid, uh, mid-90s and kept making lots of mistakes during that journey. That's how we learn, right? And I officially started my entrepreneurial journey in 2002, I think about the same time you did. Dan. I did, absolutely, yeah. same year. Yeah, so I'm sure we have a lot of struggles that we could talk about for days that we learned plentiful from. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you for your service to our country. Appreciate you're, that. You're welcome. It was my and, honor. 
and, and also love the entrepreneurial spirit in you. And, and I, it came across in the book, especially, you know, I hope you don't mind me just jumping to this because it was the way you started out your book and it was so impactful on me. And actually my wife read the book too, and she just, you know, was tearing up. I mean, I just, it was such a, a great moment, but can you, if you don't mind, can, can you share the bus story for, oh. for, with my listeners? Yeah, that's a marker moment for me, Dan. You know, when, when I was 17, my brother Ed and I, we were on a return trip home from a basketball game. And along the way, we stopped for dinner. And everyone unloaded off the bus, except for me and Ed. You know, we didn't have the means to play sports and afford dinner. And, you know, being part of a large family, it's just the way things were for us. And my parents were doing the best they could. And we were well beyond the embarrassment. So Ed and I, we stayed back on the bus and we were sitting towards the back and this gentleman steps on board the bus a few moments after the team unloaded. And as he was walking up to us, he, he razzed me a little bit because Ed had outscored me that night. <laughs> and then he said something to me, Dan, that I will always remember. He said, Bobby, it would make me very happy if you would allow me to buy you boys dinner so that you can join the rest of the team. Nobody else has to know. All you have to do to thank me is do the same thing for another great kid just like you in the future. And like I'll never forget how I felt in that moment, Dan. I mean, I had this wave of gratitude and this feeling come over, over me that's still hard for me to explain to this day. And, you know, I remember stepping off that bus and I, you know, I couldn't see three feet in front of my face. I was 17 years old. All I knew is that, you know, a year from then I wanted to raise my hand and join the army. And that was going to be my first step to take control of my story. And, you know, although I had no idea what I was going to do, like when I stepped off that bus, I knew why. You know, I would somehow, some way create something that will allow me to pay forward that kind act that Mr. T gave me that night to other kids like me who were born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide. And you know, I'll just, that, that moment just changed the course for me. And, you know, when I started my entrepreneurial journey, it was raging like an inferno inside of me. And it just became the invisible force that, that drove me, you know, cause you get, you get hit with some serious headwind when you're trying to create something. And, you know, that story always, and, and that desire to pay forward, that kind of act, just, it just always gave me the energy I needed to get through whatever I faced. So you know what I love about that, too, though, is that, you know, first of all, there's so many great lessons from that story. I mean, the, the fact that he even did it in the first place, the fact that he said no one has to know, so this isn't something he was doing for his own glorification. And, and I really want my listeners for a second to, to think about this. And, and I want you to think in your own life, how can you pull somebody aside? How can you do something good for someone? How, how can you help them in their journey through life? And there's so much fun and excitement in, in helping others. And, uh, and I think that that's the, the real takeaway. And, and then I love what you said about taking control of your own story. Man, that's powerful. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think all of us, we look for excuses to blame people or blame our situation. And yet if we want to take control, we have that opportunity, don't we? Oh, we get to choose. We get to choose so much more than we, than we think we can. And, you know, back to that moment, um, you know, it is packed with lessons. And one of the most important ones when it comes to leadership that it really showed me, and, you know, people often ask me why that moment had such a profound impact on me. And, you know, of course we were, you know, we were struggling as a family and all around me I saw opportunities that weren't available 
to us. And, you know, but that wasn't really, that wasn't my most significant struggle, Dan. Like for me, I had this narrative in my mind and Mr. Teague, he was a very successful businessman in the community. And the narrative that I told was that, hey, people like him, they don't see kids like me. And with one act of kindness, not only did he show me that I was wrong, he taught me that one of the most important parts of leadership is seeing and encouraging potential. And, you know, you and I know that as students of leadership, but, I mean, that was the first time in my life that I felt seen. And when I stepped off that bus, it's like, I felt like I was nine foot tall. It's like, I feel like I could do anything. Like this man saw me and he made me feel seen. He made me feel valued. And like it, all it takes is kindness and recognizing someone and seeing someone. And it's, it's free. <laughs> it doesn't so cost actually, you anything. Absolutely. And actually, in, in your book, and I love this because you use this term. I hope you don't want me uh, you know, pointing this out. No, but please. You, you, you said at one time you felt socially invisible. And so, I mean, let's talk about that for a second, because as one of 13 children, mm. and then one of thousands mm. of, you know, migrant children, you know, workers' children, right. children in the United States, how did you set yourself apart? Like, step into the light and be seen? I mean, because, you know, did all your brothers and sisters become CEOs? Did, you know, all these friends around you become CEOs? So how did you do it? What, what you know, lit that fire? Well, you know, unfortunately, yeah, I, like, I had a lot of reverse role models around me, and... You know, my family, we were doing the best, best we could. And, you know, my, my older siblings and so forth, you know, a lot of them had migrated over from, you know, from Mexico with my, with my parents. I was the first one born in the U.S. I, mean, I didn't speak a lick of English until I was seven. And, you know, so growing up in that environment and my dad would pull us out of school in April and we would go to Colorado and work in the onion fields, go to... Wyoming, work in the sugar beet fields, and then Idaho, pick potatoes and pears, and we'd make that journey back, and he'd put us back in school in September. And it was the only life I knew, Dan. So, you know, that continued on until I was, um, you know, early on, you know, in uh, almost like, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And it's all I knew up until then. And then as my siblings got older, some of them went off to school. I had an older sister that, you know, to take control of her story, she, you know, she had an entrepreneurial, uh, she was my first entrepreneurial example. You know, she started a, a hair salon. She started a, a woman's clothing store. And I remember watching her and, you know, she just inspired me to try to do the same. And so I always had that raging inside of me. And I, and I had great coaches, great teachers. My, you know, my family was never short on love and everything. Uh, we just didn't have the means to, you know, pursue our dreams, right? You know, dreams aren't free. And, you know, all that was cumulative for me. And, you know, when Mr. Teague saw me and when I had that moment, you know, I think it was you know, just one of those moments that will always stand out for me that kind of helped interconnect all those different pieces of those struggles that I'd had up until that time. But it wasn't until I joined the military that I started seeing things that way. And so you there know, may I talk be about that in the, in the book. Yeah, yeah, and there, and there may be listeners right now that are in a similar situation to you. I mean, that, that you know that you were in that that think that they're trapped or that they can't get out of out of their situation. What would you say yeah. directly to them? <clears throat> well, you know what I'd say to them is um, I would encourage them to go back to the beginning and and 
this has been one of the most rewarding parts of, of writing the book, Dan. It, it wasn't on my list. Yeah, I, someone would have told me a few years ago that I would have written a book. I, was, I would just, you know, brush it off. I'm a storyteller, and I've done a lot of speaking and so forth, and I do storytelling for kids and veterans. But, you know, now that we, I wrote this book and it's gotten out there, I'm getting some amazing uh, letters and feedback around, you know, people from all over the world that are saying, wow, like you're helping me reframe my struggle. It's like now I'm starting to understand that, you know, anything that we, we accomplish in life, you, like you first have to go through struggle, pain, and suffering to get to wisdom. Like there's the long way is the shortcut. And, you know, I would encourage them to go back to the beginning, make a list of those struggles, and then right next to it, just simply answer the question, what did it teach me? What did it give me? And then more, most importantly, how am I sharing that, right? Because my leadership philosophy is pretty simple. We all struggle. Every struggle teaches us something. That's the gift. And leadership is sharing those gifts. And we can all do that. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. And I love that you said dreams aren't free. And, 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 what, and, and you know, what did that struggle teach us? I mean, those are just powerful, powerful lessons. You know, it, it, in, in your book, uh, The Gift of Struggle, you talk about fulfilling your father's dream of being in the armed forces. Mm. Why, why was that so important to you? Man, um, like, you, you just asking me that question gives me goosebumps, Dan, because, um, you know, my father, yeah, he's, he was my hero. And his journey of struggle, I inherited... I inherited struggle through his story and my entire life, my dad was a phenomenal storyteller. Like I had sit and listen to his stories for hours and he, uh, he gave me that gift and I didn't know it until later in life. But one of the stories that he would often tell me is as a young man, he was going to try to join the army in Mexico in Mexico, it's called the Fuerzas de Armas. And family hardship struck, and he was unable to do so. And when he told me that story, I could just sense, and I could just feel like there was this hole in his heart. And I remember during my senior year in high school, when the recruiters came knocking and coming to the school, coming to school that I was you know, attending there in New Mexico, uh, like I just had this pull to them and fortunately, I, I knew enough about myself that, hey, I needed, I, needed to, I needed to grow up a little bit. And I'd seen my older brothers and sisters go to, you know, try to go to school and really struggle financially. And I felt like that was a better way. And I've always learned from reverse role models that way. And so when I turned 18, I didn't tell a soul. I had... Uh, finally made my, made up my mind that I was going to join the army. And this recruiter picks me up right outside the high school gym. And it was a week that I turned 18 and she put me on a bus to Amarillo, Texas. And I raised my hand and I joined the army and I'll never forget taking the oath. But when I came home, uh, you know, I had told my parents that I was staying the night at my best friends and I'd sworn my best friend and my brother and you know the girl I was dating at the time but it was secrecy. And my dad was sitting at the table and 
you know, he's one of 13, you know, he, he raised 13 kids. He didn't have time to ask a question twice and you didn't dare you know, test his authority then. And he had found mm-hmm. out that I didn't stay at my best friend's house. And so he was waiting for me when I came home the next day. And when I walked in the door, I saw him stand up and walk towards me. I knew I had to act fast. And I just, you know, I threw my military folder on the, on the table and he looked at it and he goes, what's that? I said, Dad, I, I joined the Army. And he just looked at me, and his body immediately softened. And he said, do you know what you're doing? And I said, yeah, Dad, I'm completing your dream. And so he turns around, and he walks to the window. And he's there in the window in the kitchen, and he's looking out the window. And I see his shoulders start to shake a little bit. And I could tell he was crying. It was the second time in my life that I'd seen my dad cry. And we never talked about it until the end on how much it had meant to him that I'd done that. But I knew it meant a lot to him. And it just, you know, it, when I reflect on that, on that story and it makes me really proud that I did that for him. And I think there's a real profound leadership lesson in there that, you know, a lot of leadership is helping those around you fulfill their biggest dreams and I always think about that when I ask the people that I'm guiding, hey, like, what do you dream about? What do you, like, what would make your family's heart sing if, if you were able to accomplish it for them? It's, it's that story about my dad. You know, I, I love that. And, and I love that you were able to do that for your father. But, but also I love that you said this was something that I needed too, you know, because it's, sure. it's got to be for others. And Eric can be for others, but it's, it also has to be for you and for your heart. And I don't think you would have done it if your heart wasn't in it and you didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's taking that risk. And uh, I love that he was, bo- you know, bowing up, and then all of a sudden you <laughs> you, t- you took it right out of him, man. He, he was ready for the fight, and he didn't get to oh, give man. it because he, he was so proud. The the switch of that, you know, you yeah. know, it's neat. So you come from this p- family of thirteen, and you you know, you brought up the fact, you know, you talk about your family a lot in the book, but now you know you're a proud father of three, and mm-hmm. and can can you talk about leading your kids off yeah. the beaten path, and and why <laughs> this is the Herrera family motto? That's right. Uh, you know, I have, my, I have three coconuts. I married a beautiful Norwegian girl from Seattle. So I call them my coconuts, Dan, because I say they're brown on the outside like dad and white on the inside like mom. So <laughs> that's great. Uh, and, you know, my, uh, I want to, you know, I think we all want to be our parents 2.0 for those of us that make the choice to have kids. And yeah, I believe my responsibility for them is to prepare them for the path, not prepare the path for them. And, you know, so... I have little, little things that I do with them. You know, like when I say at, at, at night, we always, you know, I want to teach them to serve others first. So when we say our evening prayer, we'll always include someone else who's struggling in that prayer uh, as an and to our, you know, our family. Other things that I do, you know, I talk about it, hiking with the kids in the book. You know, I want to teach them to not accept the well-worn path of life. And to, to seek their own wisdom. And so, you know, I love the mountains and I take them hiking as often as I can. And when we get out on a trip, on a trail, after we're on the trail for a bit, I'll always turn around and ask them, hey, what do Herreras do? 
And us in unison, they'll be like, we go off the beaten path. I love that. We'll just, you know, we'll just go off trail. And, you know, all these signs on these trails will say, hey, stay on the trail. And we respect nature. We're very respectful for it. Um, But when we go off the trail, I want to teach them to explore. I want to teach them to go out and discover new things. And we'll spend time off the trail looking for things that we wouldn't have seen had we stayed on the trail. And then I'll take it a step further. You know, I'll have us lay down in that dirt and moss and just get dirty and look up and try to look at things from a different perspective. And we'll point things out. And, you know, over time, they're starting to repeat these little principles that I'm teaching them. And I, I have a whole handful of, of these. And yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I just want to prepare them for the path so that they can take control of their story too, Dan. Well, I think that, and, and, and again, just a valuable lesson for me personally, but also the, the listeners, uh, you know, prepare them for the path, not prepare the path for them. I think as parents, we want so much to plan sure. everything out these days and every minute is, is accounted for. And yet, you know, sometimes kids need to be kids and they need mm-hmm. to have adventure and they need to discover and, and fail and succeed along the way. And, and I love that motto, and I love that you yell it out, <laughs> and they say it back in unison. Um, yeah, you know, but, and, and, and because this definitely relates to business. I mean, in sure. business, you have to go off the beaten path. Sure. You can't do things the same yeah. way and, uh, you know, over and over and over again. And we have to kind of reinvent ourselves on a regular basis. And, 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 and the, you know, that's what you've done with Populous Group. I think it's very interesting, the, the whole culture that you've created there. And, and so if you don't mind kind of switching into that, because sure. first, t- tell us a little bit from a business perspective about a Populous Group. Well, I, I founded it in 2002 with two other uh, great friends of mine. They're, they're no longer part of the story, but you know, we, you know, we're a passionate, egoless group of climbers building something bigger than ourselves. And I call my employees climbers because for a couple of reasons. One, employees doesn't mean anything. And I want anyone that joins our community to know what we stand for. And I believe that we're all climbing our own mountain and I want to bring that, I bring the essence to that. So I've wrapped an entire climbing theme around our community. And the problem we solve for the world is, you know, we're an HR services firm. You know, we help organizations better manage their non-permanent workforce and we're in a great space. There's a raging war for talent out there. And, you know, I've been blessed uh, beyond anything that I've ever imagined to build a great organization that's, grown incredibly fast and it's national and we have some phenomenal customers who've extended trust to us along the way and but most important to us uh, above all is living our purpose bringing the bus story to life yeah we believe at our core that everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed and we have a culture code that we fiercely protect our boundaries right this is these are the things that keep us safe. This is how we behave. And we believe that why we do it and how we do it is so much important than what we do. Yeah, that's important. It's just not most important. And so we fiercely protect that. And, you know, it's helped me build something special with some great people that I never imagined I was, I was going to do. And it's helping me now pay forward that kind of act I received from Mr. Teague to you know, other gritty veterans and 
kids born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide like me. That's I pick. That's a part of the world that I've picked to make better. Well, it sounds like you're doing it every day. And, you know, you, you brought up an interesting, you said the problem we solve for a company. And uh-huh. man, I, I think that's important. I talk about that a lot in, in my own speeches and, and blogs and, you know, that you solve a big problem and, and, and profit will come. You, you know, you're, you provide a great service and profit will come. If profit's your main motivator, it's going to be a miserable life. But, you know, when you're solving problems and helping people, lots of good comes your way. And, but you, you also said we're grew fast. There had to be some early struggles in the business. Can you talk about those? Because, of course, we all go through them, and then we kind of gloss over them afterwards because yeah. we don't want to revisit them in our minds. We want to forget they ever yeah. happened, but they do. So can you talk about some of those early struggles? I'd love to. You know, Dan, I, um, I look at my entrepreneurial journey. I break it up into errors, and this may resonate for you since we started our journey around the same time. You know, I call the first five years the most fun I never want to have again. Like, you name the mistake, I made it. And, you know, I started a company with two other gentlemen that remain great friends to my, to this day. However, you know, fundamentally speaking, we wanted different things and it was the equivalent of marrying the wrong person. We just had different values and we wanted to create this company for different reasons. And we didn't discuss those expectations up front and we didn't clarify those expectations up front, an essential part of building trust. So if you all want different things, you're not going to build anything. And so that was one of my first biggest mistakes. And it caused a lot of struggle in the beginning. We, you know, we got stuff done, but we didn't build that connection and safety and that trust that really ignites the growth of an organization. So those first five years, oh man, it, it definitely wasn't it looked like anything but a hockey stick growth that we imagined when we start our entrepreneurial journey. You know, we, there were, there were times that we were like, this thing may flatline. And, but the things that that teaches you, oh, you can't replace. And I tell those stories a lot to climbers that have joined, you know, PG since. Um, so how did you turn it around then? I mean, how, and how did you get out of that situation? Because listen, I promise you right now, uh-huh. there are listeners out there, you know, because a lot of CEOs, a lot of people have sure. partnerships, they're not easy. And and they may be thinking about, you know, getting out of them or trying to change the the, the story. What would you say to them? Undoubtedly. So um, I'll tell you a marker moment for me was uh, approaching that fourth or fifth year. Yeah. I wasn't a very good student, Dan. I was doing the best I could. You know, I just wanted to keep the lights on. And around that time, I met a gentleman who, I, you know, I met him at a networking event. And, you know, I'm not, I don't get out much. I mean, I moved to a farm in Portland to lay low. We were talking about that in the beginning. And I met this gentleman at this networking event, and there was something about him. He had this pool, and he was a, he was a retired, uh, you know, CEO you know, gray-haired executive, and uh, we started talking. And he, I asked him, I asked him if he would mentor me, and he agreed to have breakfast with me. And after we met a couple, about a month after that, he asked me, "All right, tell me, tell me what you're studying." You know, he made me. We talked about our struggle, uh, the things that I was struggling with, things that I was uh, facing at that time, and he was asking me questions that 
I had never been asked before. Like, hey, tell me about your organization's purpose. Tell me about your values. Tell me about the culture that you're building at your company. And I'm like, I'm like Porky Pig in all his questions. I, <laughs> I didn't have good answers. And then he's like, okay, well, hey, tell me what it is that you do. And then, you know, I became a, it was just a brain dump. And I was born into tears, I could tell. And after that meeting, he, he said, look, you have a lot to learn. I think you have potential, but you have a lot, you need a lot more clarity on why you're doing this and how you're doing this. He said, I'm going to give you uh, an assignment. And if you do this assignment, I'll meet with you again. And he assigned me, uh, and he gave me my first Pat Lencioni fable, The Four Obsessions of a CEO. And I'd never heard of Pat Lencioni before. And he said, read this, call me in a couple of weeks, and if you show me that you are going to, you know, you know apply these lessons, then I'll, I'll meet with you again. I went straight to the library right after our meeting, picked it up. I couldn't put it down. And I remember reading it and I was like, oh, I can do this. And my, you know, I'm, I'm given that context of that story and what, what happened there because what I really didn't know how to do at that time was to bring to life the single most important asset that I believe any entrepreneur will ever own. And that is build trust. And I was so focused on building value and what I was unintentionally overlooking is that importance of building trust, building community and, you know, leading my people in a way that fostered the trust that we needed to be able to deliver better value. And I just became a student of like, uh, of, of all of Pat's work. And I became a student of, of other, you know, great thought leaders up to that point. I wasn't making the time to do it, right? I was falling victim to the excuse that I think a lot of leaders make. Oh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get to, I'll become a student when I have more time. I was like, you're just going to chase the clock then. It's never going to happen. I finally became a student. And I started fiercely applying what the best were teaching me. And, you know, in the book, I talk about how I had learned that lesson from one of my other mentors, Dr. Joe, early in my leadership career, and then I had digressed. Right? So I wanted people to, to see that and say, like, hey, I'm human. Everybody's human. We're all going to struggle. No one's perfect. I had digressed in the lessons that Dr. Joe had taught me early in my leadership career, and I didn't bring those over to my entrepreneurial journey. So then how did that help you with the partners? Just, I want to circle back there because how, did, how long did that take when you made that change? Well, it helped me. Um, you know, I th- think what it really helped me do is sit down with them and say, hey, we all want different things, and that's okay. All it does is makes it just it doesn't make us bad people. It just makes us different. And uh, you know, at that point in time, we had had enough conversations around. Look, I'm in this for the long run. You're in it for you know for other reasons. And you know, we had we had some real difficult conversations around separating. And you know, it was a very financially painful but amicable event. But we sat down and talked about them. And becoming a student and just knowing that, look, 
trust is the single most important asset that I'll ever own. And we don't trust each other enough because we have a different value set here. And we just, you know, it, it helped me approach them and have these difficult conversations with them in a manner that didn't compromise the integrity of the friendship and the brotherhood that we had built. Yeah, that's great. And and I appreciate you sharing that because I think mm-hmm. there are a lot of people and you know, as I travel around the world, I hear a lot of people complain or talk about those situations and they struggle through them and 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 there is an upside. You, you can you can solve it, but I think the open communication is is very important. You know, and and that goes back to the kind of the culture that you created. And in, in your book, you talk about the importance of establishing a healthy company culture. And for my listeners out there, what things should we keep in mind as listeners when when striving to establish the right culture? Are there examples of great organizations or teams that we can look to when solidifying our company's culture? Sure. Um, you know, I'll often ask you know when I'm speaking to a group of of leaders that that you know I believe want to build a great culture. You know, I'll often ask them, um, hey, if I was to pull 10 people aside in your community and if I was to ask them one question about your culture, and this is a question, I'm going to ask all 10 people the same exact question. Tell me what they imagine about the culture that they're trying to build. You know, I wrote a chapter in the book about that, share what you imagine. And first and foremost, if if you don't share that story on the type of culture that you want to build, no one can help you build it because nobody can build a strong, healthy, intentional culture by themselves. And I think the single one of the biggest single biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make is they don't share what they imagine. And you know, like I did on the road trip with my wife, you know, when I first started my company, when she asked me, "Hey, are we going to make it?" You know, I said, well, I don't know, but I tell you, I want to build, I want to build a community that feels like they're part of something bigger than themselves, where we're worthy to be ourselves, where we are always students and act like we have a lot to learn, where we're humble, where we always have each other's back, where we always tell the truth despite what's at stake, where we don't take ourselves too seriously. And I started describing all these things to her. And Rosin asked me, how are you going to do that? And I'm like, oh, I have no idea. I'll figure <laughs> what it out. What fantasy world exactly. are you going to live in when all this can uh, come together? It's possible. And, it's possible. Yeah. But, you know, Dan, I, I, the reason, like, I, I had had some very fortunate professional experiences up to that point, but I'd also experienced a lot of things that annoyed the heck out of me. And so all I was describing to Rosin were like, okay, I want to bring the good that I've learned, that I've been very fortunate to observe and be a part of, but I also want to eliminate all the stuff that annoys me, you know, like giving people a voice, having people feel seen. And, and so, you know, I always ask them, Hey, what kind of answers would I get if I asked 10 people, Hey, tell me the culture that so you know, that, that, that so that your, that your leader imagines. And if they can't tell you that, you know, then first and foremost, that's a massive opportunity for, you know, the listeners out there to, you know, what do you imagine? And then once you start there, then you can start the journey to building that. Because if you don't know, you know, why and what you want to build, it's like the how doesn't matter. You're, you're and, just going to get what you get. 
Yeah, no one else will as well. So, you, you know, it. It, I love the question too. And, and, and also, but you, you also brought us some other questions in your book that I thought were fascinating. Mm-hmm. You, you talked about, you know, how to draw out problems from people. And then you actually listed these two questions and I, I highlighted them. I wrote them down. I actually even texted them to some friends, but it said, <laughs> tell me about something that annoys you was one of the questions. Yeah. So when you're talking, tell me about something that annoys you. And then also, what should we be doing differently? And, and, you know, can you talk more about that? Because they were powerful to me. It's kind of a neat way to draw, you know, open them up so that they'll actually be honest with you. You got it. Well, it's at the, that's, that's getting to the heart of entrepreneurism, right? Just about anything that we utilize in our everyday lives, we're born from something that annoyed somebody, you know, products for our kids, the stuff we're using now, the evolution of all the tools that we use every day. There's got to be a better way. Huh. And that's at the essence of it. And you know, I believe that, um, you know, like, I have a term that I use within our culture, and I call it no ROE, no return on ego. And the way we that's practice great. that is we do not fall victim to the alpha myth that the leadership chain is the IQ chain. Actually, I believe the opposite. I believe my climbers at the front lines they have 99% of the information. Like I'm an organizational nightmare. They don't want me in their business. And, but I want to know when I sit with them, you know, Hey, tell me something that you're doing right now that annoys you or that causes you frustration. Or tell me something that annoys the customer we serve because I know they know the answer to that stuff. And then after they, they, they tell me that, I'll be like, all right, here's a blank sheet of paper. How should we do it differently? And when it's not that complicated, just give them a voice. But you have to follow up with the recommendations they give you. You have to listen to them. You have to earn that right to ask those questions uh, and make people feel safe enough to share you know, if they, if they share something that annoys them and you turn around and justify it, I got news for you. They're never going to tell you something that annoys them again. Right. So, you know, it's all how we respond to those questions. You know, it's interesting. So I talk a lot about this. I talk about, you know, do you have CEO disease? And then, and then I'll say, (laughs) you can ask questions like, you know, um, what should I do more of less of ad, you know, and, and get feedback. But I was at an event and this guy comes up, he said, Hey Dan, in that same vein, he said, my wife and I ask each other a question every Sunday night and we've been doing it for 26 years, mm-hmm. regardless of whether we're traveling, but it's, and, and it's not, it's non-threatening because we know it's coming, but he said every single Sunday night, they say, what did I do this week that you never, ever want me to stop doing? And what did I do this week that you never, ever want me to do again? And then they just talk about it. Yeah. And and he said, and I love that from this perspective. It stops that you know, stop it, stop it, stop. It's been bothering me for twenty years. You're like twenty years. You couldn't have told me like nineteen years, eleven months, twenty nine <laughs> days ago. We could work it out. But you know, it just it allows you to communicate. And same here, because I, I I believe that. I think what you said is exactly true. That the front line, they know what's happening. You just have to ask them. And and they don't want the problems. They want in a, a more efficient th- a way. They want to make the customers happy. Nobody wants to be yelled at or doing things over and over again that are wrong. But, 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 and then you also brought this up and I want my listeners to really hear this. You actually have to act on it. You don't have to actually do it, but you have to actually act on it. Um, let them know that you heard, heard them. 
you know, do something with it so that they feel that they can come to you again, like you said. Undoubtedly. Um, Dan, so, may, I, may, I, may I comment on a couple please. of things? Number one, that's a phenomenal question. And I believe one of the most important parts of continuing your leadership journey is being a student. I'm going to take that. I love that question. I'm actually going to use <laughs> it this Sunday with my wife. And I'm going to email you next week and let you know uh, how it went. So I will hold myself accountable to doing that. Well, you I know, and I pre- and, and we all should, right? Because it's just yeah. about being open and understanding. Look, no, yeah. no one's perfect. I mean, there's yeah. no perfect out there. There's no yeah. perfect spouse, perfect friend, perfect company, perfect employee. But there is so much good in this life. And I'm convinced if you give love and affection and invest in the good, you can actually move them as into yeah. the great category as close to humanly perfect yeah. as possible. But now, we have I, to communicate. Now I'm only going to give her, I say, okay, just one thing, honey, just one thing. You only get one a week. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> one a week. One a week. She's <laughs> like, I've been, I'm glad you're asking. Here's my yeah, list. I've been exactly. waiting for years to, yeah. to unload yeah. all Hers, of these on you. My wife's a planner. It'll be typed. And they'll be like, okay, yeah, yeah. yes, I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Right. So, so let, let me ask you this because, um, you know, you navigated the tough transition from the military into the private sector. Mm. And, and I, I, again, I mean, people out there that, that are making this transition, lots of, lots of veterans that are coming out and, and want to make an impact. What lessons from the armed forces translate well in the business world? How should they position themselves? Well, and there's, there's countless, but I'm going to hit on a few uh, real important ones that I'm going to, uh, that I've actually applied rigorously in building populist group. So I believe what veterans do better than anyone is build trust. I mean, that's at the essence and the heart of, you know, what you learn in the military. And, you know, in the military, we call it, we, you know, we, we, we talk about it by saying, Hey, I've got your six, right? I've got your back. And in the military, you learn, you forget me and we is cemented in your mindset. And so as an organization, if teamwork and trust are important to you, then you are doing your community a massive disservice by not taking that invaluable community building skill from these amazing men and women that have raised their hand to serve. So the second important one uh, is, you know, one of the things that the military does really well is, you know, they do, they, the armed forces call them different things, but uh, we call them debriefs. And, you know, you have safety briefings. And before you go on a mission, you have a debrief and you talk about every aspect of the mission. You clarify exactly what great looks like. How are we going to do it? Who's going to do what? When are we going to get to this point, that point? What's the plan? And we all know that most things in life that we plan work out differently. And it's no different in the military. So, the military is very intentional about after these missions or these training exercises, they do another debrief and they ask themselves, Hey, what went well? What should we do different next time? What should we start doing? Stop doing, continue doing. And like, I credit the power of these amazing uh, dialogue, creating debriefs to a significant portion of our growth. And we've had some monster growth in the subsequent eras after that most fun we never want to have again. I credit a significant part of that to debriefs. Like most organizations that, you know, leaders that I'll mentor or whatever, 
I'll ask them, hey, why are you winning? Or why are you losing? And, you know, why is, you know, how are you giving your people a voice? How are you discussing this? And a lot of times we'll implement a simple debrief system for them and it just helps them build more trust. It helps them better understand the core and the root of the problem. And then you start making that incremental gradual improvement time over time. And like those lessons are invaluable and we've applied them rigorously at Populist Group. Yeah, and I love that you've just now given uh, some veterans an opportunity to kind of maybe re relook and, and retell their story uh, mm-hmm. because there, there's so much good coming out of these people and, and they have the opportunity to really add value to companies and, and these companies need to realize that. You know, it's interesting. In the beginning, I said, and this kind of matches that same mentality, that, that risk-taking, that kind of looking outside of the norm. At the beginning, you said you were an, uh, I said you were an unwavering supporter of the underdog. Oh, yeah. and, and as someone who is a successful co-founder and company president, how do you keep that underdog mentality alive for yourself, your employees, and, and your children? Well, you know, humility is very important to me. Uh, I mean, it is, you know, uh, I'll, you know, I believe we all have a story to tell. And, you know, I was introduced to struggle from day one. I inherited struggle and telling those stories over and over again. You know, the, when I walk into, you know, my barn, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's my refuge. That's where I do a lot of my writing. I work out of a, you know, refinished barn here in Portland. And when I turn the lights on, the first thing I see is uh, my dad's military draft card and his bracero card, which was his card that he used when he was part of the program between Mexico and the U.S. that gave him permission to come work as a migrant farm worker during the you know, early 1900s. And that's the first thing I see when I turn on the lights, Dan. And I want it to be the first thing I see because it always helps me understand that, hey, someone sacrificed and struggled so that I can have what I'm fortunate enough to enjoy today. And you know, that's a big part of my life. And well, one of my rituals is I start my day with a gratitude exercise. And I think gratitude's one of the most powerful emotions on the planet because it, it creates love and it creates compassion. And I'm, you know, I've, I've learned that gratitude is a skill that you develop. And okay, so you have that, to tell my listeners, though, what's the gratitude exercise? I, I'm, I'm dying to know. Yeah, so every day, um, one, of my first, one of the first parts of my routine is I write in a gratitude journal. And I simply write down a few things that I'm grateful for. Um, I'm sure Monday I'll write down, you know, uh, I'm grateful for Rosalind's unvarnished candor about what I can do. <laughs> You know, how never, she just waxed poetically about how much she loves you and you got how it. perfect you are. Yes. You got it. And, you know, and, and, and I'll do that yet. So, you know, and I'll write a few things, something that I'm grateful for, and that keeps me grounded and it helps me uh, stay in the present and live in the moment and really enjoy the things that I've been fortunate enough to, you know, create for my family, create for myself. Now, are these just words or are they sentences? Just words. Like, you know, yeah, just sentences. They're like it's it's just one simple sentence. One, two, three. I'm I'm grateful for, you know, my daughter's creativity. Or I'm grateful for the thank you I got from X last week. I'm grateful that I'm getting these wonderful, heartwarming notes from people all over the world. Just something that 
really helps me appreciate the impact I've chosen to make on those around me. And it keeps me grounded. And I take it, you know, I, I take it a step further in that I believe that one of the most important parts of leadership is making sure that the things that you're grateful for, people know about it. And, you know, if, if I write something down about I'm grateful for, you know, a, a person, I tell that person what I wrote down. You know, I'll call them and I say, hey, I just want you to know that I, I, I this morning in my gratitude journal, I wrote that I'm so grateful for having you in, in, in the community and so grateful for your leadership, the things that you do. And like, I end up feeling better than, than they do by sharing that compliment. It feels good. Yeah, there's power in gratitude, isn't there? Oh, un, like you, unwavering power. I wish I would have learned it earlier in my life. So you know what makes me happy and makes me smile is that your father hopefully was able to see this success and, and, and be proud of you. Was, was that the case? You know, it, unfortunately, his, uh, you know, his story ended in 1998. And you know, he left quite a legacy, a uh, large family and so forth. But I tell people all the time, there's, hey, there's free beer in heaven. He's, he's, he's telling stories in heaven about you know, what his 11th kid is doing. So. Well, I still believe he's smiling, <laughs> he's happy as can be, and proud as can be. Because you know, I mean, just to see your success and and see how really you changed your story, and 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 especially your attitude through it all, and and it just reminded me as you were talking there. One of the things that I took from your book is you asked this question: What's the best that can happen? Yeah, and and I just mm-hmm. love that. It, it, I circled it a bunch of times yeah. because you know, so often life, everything is what's the worst that can happen, or you know, all the negative, all the horrible, because that's all we yeah. see on the news, that's all we see everywhere around us. And by the way, misery loves company, so we hear yeah. it all the time. You got but it. But you, but you said, what's the best that can happen? That was awesome. Yeah, and Dan, here's another lesson in leadership. Right, I learned that from one of my best climbers, and uh, it's actually um, one of my best climbers. He's a gritty. Italian kid from upstate New York. His name's Josh. And it was actually Josh, his wife, Mo, said that to him one time. And Josh told me that story. So in the course of learning his story and the things that were important to me, he shared a real special moment where his wife had said to him around a difficult time, Josh, what's the best that could happen? And I said, hey, I love that. (laughs) I said, may I have your permission to use it? So, you know, as leaders, our responsibility is to learn, and our, our people can teach us as much as we teach them. It's a two-way street, so I want to make but sure we have that to listen. you got it. You have to listen. You have to listen. So. so so, let's talk about that book for a second, and I know we've you know put it in here throughout the, the you know our talk, but The Gift of Struggle, I read it. I really enjoyed all your stories and leadership lessons it contains, and, and, and I know this may be hard, but for my listeners that haven't read it yet, can you share a brief synopsis and, and maybe just a favorite lesson from the book. Like, do you, is there a favorite lesson that you have? Yeah. Well, I, I told the bus story. Um, that was probably the, you know, I don't know if I would say it's a favorite lesson, but I think my, 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 my absolute favorite lesson is the one, uh, is the next story, uh, choosing the hardest, right. And you want, you want me to tell that story, Dan? Yeah, I'm, if you I'm don't mind, I, I would no. love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, March 31st, 1998, I got a call from my sister. Like, I remember it plain as day. I remember the date. And I was on a business trip to Vancouver, British Columbia. And at the time, I was working for a wonderful organization, and they'd given me more responsibility than I was ready for. I was on the West Coast. And when she tracked me down, she says to me, 
Bobby, I think you need to come home. I don't think dad's going to make it. And Dan, my heart just sunk. And it was a call that I knew was coming, but I was like resenting the moment it would arrive. You know, my dad was in a 18 month battle with uh, tuberculosis. He was in the fight of his life. And so I'd seen this strapping, strong, you know, blue collar ranch foreman go from the Mexican John Wayne to someone that we hardly even recognized. And we all knew the end was near. And so it was a Tuesday night. And ironically, that Thursday, I had a trip to Colorado uh, Colorado Springs scheduled to go to a wedding. And so I told my sister, I said, all right, I'll, I'll look into changing my plans tomorrow. I'll get there as soon as I can. And the next morning before I started shifting my plans around, I decided to call my dad in the hospital and check in. And when I called him, I said, hey, you know, Poppy, how you doing? I'll be there as soon as I can. I'm changing my plans. You know, I'll, I'll be there later tonight. Hold on. And he just gave me this long, silent pause. And I'd grown very familiar with that long pause, Dan. Usually it was a signal from my dad that, son, you're about to make a choice that I disagree with. And I'd learned the hard way, the consequences of that long pregnant pause. And I was confused because here he is in the hospital, he's sick, and I'm telling him I'm going to go home and see him. And then he asked me, you know, mijo, son, don't you have a wedding to go to in Colorado this weekend? And I said, see, sí, papa. And he goes, well, then you, you, you have to go to that wedding. I said, dad, he'll totally understand. He, he knows how sick you are. I'm going to be there later tonight. I'll see you soon. Another pregnant pause. And then he asked me, son, did you give him your word? And I knew I was in for it then, Dan. I said, yes. I said, see, Papa, I did. He said, well, you have to go. You're not changing your plans. You're going. And he went on to tell me in that exchange, because I was arguing with him. He's like, you're welcome to change your plans and come home. But if you come home, I'm not letting you in the hospital room. And he was stubborn as a day is long, Dan. He would have barricaded that room. He wouldn't have let me in. And I reluctantly kept my plans. Well, that Thursday, I get on a flight to Colorado Springs. Longest flight of my life. I mean, I've taken hundreds of flights in my life. And I don't remember hardly any of them. That one, I remember every detail. Because I knew that I had just made a mistake that I would forever regret. And so I arrive in Colorado Springs. I rush to the hotel. I call my dad. I exhale a little bit. He reassures me he's okay. And he says, hey, go have fun. Go, uh, you know, I'll be here. Just come see me on Sunday. And I did. And I went off and I had a great time. And, you know, that Sunday, I remember walking into the hospital room. And it was like, it was, it was just in, in my brain that whole weekend. I'm thinking, man, dad, please hold on. Please hold on. And so I had this enormous sense of relief that Sunday when I walked in and I remember giving my dad a big hug and thanking him for reinforcing one of the most valuable leadership lessons I've ever learned. And that is to, you know, always keep your word, always do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. And I talk about that in the book, but the lesson from that story, Dan, is even, even broader. You see that next week I sat by my dad's bedside and I listened to his 
you know, stories of his life and his journey when he had the energy to tell him, and I just held his hand because I knew it was probably going to be the last time I got to see him. But this time I had a new story to tell, to tell him. That Thursday night after I hung up with my dad, I went to join some friends for some pre-wedding activities, and I uh, having a beer with a good buddy of mine. And during that conversation, this beautiful gray-eyed Norwegian girl comes up to our table, and I just remember my friend saying, "Hey, Bobby, this is this is Rosalind." And I just turned into this. Yeah, I just remember getting all nervous and. Like there was something about this girl. And so I'm telling my dad all about this girl that I met at the wedding, and I'm begging him to hold on. Well, unfortunately, he ended up passing about three weeks after that week that I spent with him, and he was never able to meet this girl. But three years later, I married her. And I tell wow. that, yeah, <laughs> wow, and, never would have met if yeah. he would have just jumped on a plane. Yeah. Or, I mean, so look at that. He was looking out for you even then. Yeah, he was. And I tell my, I tell people that my dad saved his best list, uh, lesson for last. And, you know, the lesson was, hey, always choose the hardest right over the easiest wrong, despite what's at stake. Because when you do that, life has a way of rewarding you in ways that you can't even imagine. So... So many great life lessons there, and I love that story. Thank you yeah. for sharing with the You're listeners. Thanks you know, for oh man, I, I just I love the way you talk about your parents. You know, if, if you don't mind me sharing, it's it's this story is going to start out really negative, <laughs> but it's going to end really positive. <laughs> uh, my my mom had stage four breast cancer for eighteen years. Man. Three times she was on her deathbed. They they called us in and said it wasn't going to happen. A year later, we'd be on the Disney cruise with her. She just she was Norwegian, so I'm I'm appreciating what you're saying. Uh, I have a grandpa Gunder, Uncle Torfin, Grandpa Enoch, <laughs> Grandma Trina, so very Norwegian blood. But but you know, on her last night, uh, she'd survived those 18 years, riddled with cancer throughout her whole body. Uh, she was at her home. It was Christmas time, all, surrounded by all the grandchildren. Everyone was there. Um, you know, she went from knowing none of them to knowing all of them. And uh, this may show my personality, and I apologize in advance, but I, um, you know, she's laying in bed. She can't talk, but she's totally lucid. This was her last night. And all of a sudden, everyone left the room. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's alone. I run, I dive into bed. I, I you know, cuddle up right next to her. And I go, mom, mom, if I'm your favorite, don't say anything. <laughs> and I remember she just, she couldn't talk. She had this huge smile that came across her face. And I said, I knew it. I knew it. That's now great. I can live a good life. Because, you know, I would always ask her, am I your favorite? And she'd say, I love all my three kids. And I'm like, that's impossible. None of them love you like I love you. You know, I'm, and so anyway, so now I can live a good life because I knew that I was her favorite. And it was that's justified, great. you know, that's proven great. at the end. But, you know, those those parents, those moments with our parents. And, and you know, it, for all my listeners out there, I mean, really think about this for a second. If there's a, a miscommunication or a struggle between you and your parents or your brothers and sisters, I mean, really look hard and deep about that. Uh, life is so short, and put some of those things aside, put pride aside, and mend those fences. But then also, you know, maybe videotape, audiotape some of those great stories because your kids, your grandkids, they'll love to hear them someday, and you can revisit them and hear that voice in their voice. It's just so powerful. And uh, so thanks for sharing that story, man. Yeah. I, I, I love that about your father and, and, and the fact that he entered, you know, that you were able to stay and then met your wife during that time. Wow, yeah, that's, that's, it's, that's impactful. It's, uh, it's, it, 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 it's best, he saved his best gift for last. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Now I have my coconuts. Yeah, exactly, all three <laughs> of them. So, so I, want, I want to read a short passage from chapter 10 of your book because it, it's such an important lesson. And, and I know my leaders will benefit from hearing it again. You know, on page 109 of the book, you say, 
and I'm going to quote you, any process left in place too long can become an inefficient. I introduced the phrase resetting the broken arm to remind us to break things in order to make them better. When a process or routine settles for too long, it's time to break it again. Can you talk about that briefly? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think it's part of the law of evolution. You know, and hey, scar tissue and broken bones, they heal stronger than, than they were originally made. And, you know, fundamentally for us, what's important to me is you know, I want us to be able to continually create that pioneering environment and that culture where it invites people to bring their fresh perspective and their ideas to our community. And you know, we build a lot of our human systems around that where you know, we have little mantras that you know, we give every climber on day one a carabiner. And on that carabiner, and that's a signal to them, when, we, when they get selected, because we don't believe that we hire people, we believe we select great people. And there's a difference. And you know, when they get selected, they get a carabiner. And on that carabiner, uh, it says the word choice. And we teach them very quickly that you get to choose the impact that you make here. You get to choose when you raise your hand. You get to choose when you speak up. You get to choose when you share with us uh, what's annoying you. You get to choose every aspect of your climb. Like you control your attitude and your effort. You may not control everything else around you, but you control that. And you know, we build all these systems around that mindset so that we create the safety for people to be able to speak up. Because you and I both know once something's around for very long, if you don't figure out a better way, somebody else will. Right? And our primary core value is, hey, find a better way. And we want to keep that pioneering mindset alive in our community. Otherwise, we'll, we'll grow stale. And you and I both know that if people aren't challenged, they're not going to stay. So you have to give them opportunities to bring all the great lessons that they've had in their life to, to, you know, to, to where they're at with you today. And you know, we also tell them, you have one day to be new. Day two, we want to start hearing from you. But, you know, and it's so good for us to hear that because the reality is it's just easy to be quiet, to stay silent. And, and it takes, you know, it's it's not comfortable to break outside that mold and, and challenge mm. things and change things. And, I, you know, I, when I talk, I talk about it as creative destruction, you know, ripping right. it apart and putting it back together. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think that there, there's power in, in, you know, like you said from the very beginning, going off the beaten path, trying to keep things fresh and new. Undoubtedly. So, so in, in closing, you know, I want to ask you a couple fun questions. Sure. Um, so just curious, because, you know, you've got this wealth of wisdom now in life. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Oh, my goodness. My 20-year-old self, Dan, wouldn't listen to my 50-year-old self. Like, uh, so I'd actually, I'd actually buy him a beer, and I would say, hey, Bobby, have fun. It's gonna, I'm going to, like, enjoy watching you fall on your face for the next, you know, 15 years. Like, I, I think I would just say, hey, have fun. Have fun. I wouldn't change a thing because all those struggles and all those mistakes I made, that's what got me to where I'm at today. So oh, That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So what, what one trait, if you had to pick one trait and just tell me the trait, would mm-hmm. you um, look for it in one of your top uh, climbers? Uh, someone asked me this one time after I gave a talk to a group of CEOs and, uh, I, you know, I'll toggle back and forth, but I said generosity, but 
um, and I'll, I'll say that again, generosity, because uh, I believe that the essence of leadership is given more than you take. And, you know, you can do that by being kind. You can do that by being a great listener. You can do that by practicing compassion and doing the right thing versus always being concerned with being right. So if you gave me just one, I would say I look for generosity. All right. Well, now you are almost on the verge of two. So what was the <laughs> second one? I'm always just so curious. So yeah. Well, you know, I, the two. I'd say generosity, and I'd, and I'd also say kindness because chi- okay. kindness changed my life. Yeah. You know, if, if I'd like to think that I would have figured it out on my own, Dan, had Mister Teague not walked on board the bus, but that's not a real comfortable thought for me. And you know, his his gesture of kindness absolutely changed my life and. Not long ago, uh, I actually flew him to an event that we had in Detroit, and him and his wife, Nancy, and I I talked to him before. He knew the impact. We'd had uh, some real special phone conversations, but I I surprised uh, the the crowd there at an event we had in Detroit after I spoke, and I'd flown him in, and I did something that I've been waiting 33 years to do. I bought him a meal, and... I, you know, I've saved the receipt. I'm going to frame it. It was a special meal for me. And I, at the end, I brought him up on stage and he got the standing ovation that he deserves. So did he enjoy the, did he enjoy the Taco Bell? (laughs) 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 Or was it a Morton Steakhouse? Come on, no, he he got a little better meal than he, you know, he bought me a cheeseburger. I bought him a good, I bought him a good good, authentic Mexican meal. Good. No, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, so, so let, let me ask you this. What, and what, just one more, if you don't mind. And by the way, loved it sure. again, you know, following up the kindness, the generosity, just the, the impact of, of realizing uh, that he made a difference in your life and then, and then celebrating him for doing it. I, yeah. That's People just, need again, to know. People yeah, need another, to know. but another good lesson for, the, for my listeners on just, you know, really look for ways to thank those in your, in your life. And, and so this, this, this last question, if money was no object, you know, what latent passion would you love to pursue? Uh, if, if money was no object, what, what passion? I'm sorry. Yeah. Like what passion would you want to pursue? Like what's your dream job or what's your, like, if you could just do whatever you wanted to do? Well, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually already doing it. I mean, I'm a storyteller. Like I love to, I, I just love to tell stories to kids born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide and just see their pupils dilate with that look on their face that says, wow, maybe I do have what it takes. It's like maybe I have, maybe this was part of the plan, my struggle. And you know, I've always wanted to do that. And so I'm actually, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm actually living it. Um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty simple guy at heart, Dan. I, you know, I, like I said, I grew to, I moved to a farm in Portland because I wanted my kids to grow up in the dirt. And it's, you know, I, I just, that's just, that's just how I'm wired. But just storytelling to kids and veterans, that's, that's what makes my heart sing. Well, I think we're all fortunate that you're doing that because you're making a huge impact in people's lives. And, you know, Bobby, I just want to thank you for being part of the show. You've been a fantastic guest. I'm thrilled to share your insights with my listeners. Um, so where can people learn more about you? Well, they can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, um, I can, you know, my, my handle is at Bobby Herrera PG. And yeah, you know, um, my website is bobby-herrera.com and they can sign up for the blog. I'm, you know, posting stories, uh, around struggle and students of struggle every couple of weeks. Uh, I've got some real exciting, um, stories to share over the coming months. 
And uh, Dan, I'm real in line with your leadership philosophy around seeing the potential in others. So I'm grateful that you asked me to join you and I've had a blast. Well, I think that, you know, with the gift of struggle, right, we're, we're all going to struggle, but do you let that define and defeat you or empower and strengthen you? And I think that you've shown us today that it, it can empower and strengthen you. So thank you so much. We'll, we'll be sure to share, by the way, all that information, all your information in the show notes for this episode of quigglegroup.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those of you out there, quigglegroup.com forward slash zero five two. So thank you again for your time, Bobby, and for teaching us that each struggle contains a unique and valuable gift. Uh, take care and thanks again. All hail the underdog. Thanks, Dan. Hey, Garage to Goliath listeners. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do your part and help us promote the show by rating, reviewing, sharing, and subscribing on iTunes at quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. Your feedback not only helps us improve, it also helps others find this show. And please share this podcast with friends. As a personal favor to me today, will you text one other leader in your life this link, quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. And tell them you listen to this leadership podcast and you think they might enjoy it too. Thank you and thanks again for listening.